You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Amen. If you will, take your Bibles this morning, turn to Judges chapter 1, Judges chapter 1 today. Good to see you this morning. And uh, that is a preview of a song that we will be singing again on uh, Wellness Weekend. Just wanted to remind you, two weeks from today, I will be hosting here Saturday evening a service at 5.30, um, and then uh, Soup Fellowship after that, and also have a dessert auction for our teens, fundraiser for that. Uh, and then Sunday, we'll have two services, 9 o'clock, so we'll not have small groups that morning, and then our 10.30 service. But all of that this year is uh, related to guilt and uh, processing guilt maybe of our own past, either false sense of guilt or legitimate guilt that needs to be resolved, how that affects us physically, mentally, emotionally, and then also how to deal with maybe how others have wronged us and maybe unresolved guilt. That person now is in eternity. How do we process some of these hard aspects of guilt, either our guilt or the guilt of others? and how that impacts our wellness before the Lord. So excited about that in a couple of weeks. encourage you to invite someone to come with you. And we just had a couple years ago a gal get saved on Saturday night. It was invited by one of our church uh, folks, and so I'd love to see that happen again in a few weeks. Uh, good to be back with you. Uh, I have not been here since Vision Sunday, and that feels, it's been three weeks. And uh, some of you, like, it's been the best three weeks of our church's life. Others of you, you hope that I was gone forever, and uh, I, I love you too. No, I'm just kidding, but it's good to be back. And I just want to share, uh, obviously, part of our ministry is not just what we do here, but out of here. I haven't talked to him directly this morning, but I think Brother Stoffer has gone this morning speaking elsewhere, and God's using his chaplaincy ministry. And I'm just excited to be a part of a church that's not just about how much we can amass here and how often we can meet here, but also what we're doing out of the ministry here uh, so I just want to share this. Guys, if you can pull that up there, the first slide. This is, uh, I want you to, don't pay attention to the beginning of this, but one of the pastors I was with the last two weeks, the one I was with in Rock Hill, South Carolina, just about a half hour south of Charlotte, at the very end of it, he says this, thank you, uh, North Life Baptist Church, for letting us borrow your pastor uh, for a refreshing weekend. And we had a really fruitful couple of weekends. We were in um, Flint, Michigan area two Sundays ago. Last Sunday, we were in uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina. And especially this last week, just to encourage you, uh, as we go into churches, we have two groups of people, people who, why are we talking about this at church, all these things as it relates to emotional, mental health, and wellness, and then others that are just craving it. And uh, usually the younger demographic is eager to talk about it. And unfortunately, sometimes those that are a bit older are not, or at least unfamiliar with it. And just there were a lot of older folks that had had a lot of grief and sorrow and challenges, and it just had some really meaningful conversations with them. So I just want to encourage you, appreciate your partnership in prayer, and this church specifically, God, uh, really blessed last weekend, excited to see how God will use that in the months and years ahead. All right, if you will, Judges chapter 1, we're beginning a new series today, and we're going to look at this morning... Um, grace for the half-hearted generation. Look here in Judges chapter 1. We're going to be looking at this study on Sunday mornings the next couple of weeks um, and uh, several months together. Our theme that we mentioned a few weeks ago, our theme for the year is to regenerate um, in 2023. And obviously Judges is a book that accounts 
uh, recounts of an opposite direction that we want to avoid with the Lord's help. Judges chapter 1, let's look at verse 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And we're going to talk about some of the verses that um, the narrator continues. But if you would, go down to verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong. So all of these victories and all these things that God used them to do in the verses between verse 1 and verse 28. It came to pass when Israel was strong, notice this, that they put the Canaanites to tribute, tribute and did not utterly drive them out. And so we're looking at a new series today, Every Generation, a study on the relentless grace of God in Judges, and specifically this morning, grace for the half-hearted generation. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us today. Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord, it's good to be home today. Thank you for what you've done here and abroad and what you're doing in other places this morning with missionaries and ministries that you allow us to be partnered with. Thank you for the, the foundation and many that pray and give and attend and serve and are right now serving uh, to make what happens here uh, be what you would have it to be. And we thank you for the growth and just uh, your provision and, and just different investments folks have made even this last week, whether in the physical campus of our ministry or other aspects and things that we may not even know about. Thank you for their commitment to you and to your call in our ministry here. Pray, fathers, we now enter into this book, Lord, a tough book, a book that, um, Lord's not an easy read, and yet in, in every page we can see your hand and your, your plan and your sovereignty and your grace and your just your mercy to your people. And I pray that you would convince us, Lord, over these next several months we share together in this book, um, that, Lord, you truly do work and you will work and you are eager to work in every generation, not just the ones of old or someday when we're free of this life, but, Lord, you, you can work today and tomorrow. Convince us of that. May it transform our own mindset and our own mission before you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I want to show you quickly just an overview of the book. So this would be the 12 judges. And again, we'll unpack these at length as we go. But uh, you will see there, beginning in chapter 3, uh, we have Othniel um, and uh, work all the way down to Samson in Judges 16. There's a couple of closing chapters. But it kind of gives you who the oppressors were, how long they were oppressing the Israelites, um, and then who the judge was that uh, God used to deliver. Abimelech, you see mentioned there, number five, he was self-appointed, um, and so I would not include him in the judges in the sense that the others would be. Um, but you see there kind of an overview of um, the book. And as you're looking at that slide there, uh, may I just say something by way of introduction to the series and to the book. The book of Judges is not about the judges. Um, in fact, I would say to you, and I've heard folks try to, well, you know, and they try to kind of, this is a tough book, and I've been grappling with preaching in it for several years and just felt God really impressed on my heart to do so. But the thing I've struggled with is the judges were not, in many ways, the ideal or, or what we should mimic or uh, should pattern our own lives and leadership after. And I just want to say today as we begin, the book of Judges is not about a series of role models. In fact, it, it, it really is God showing by contrast the inadequacies and insufficiencies of these human leaders to cause us to yearn for the judge, to learn for the deliverer. 
And the word judge that's found um, as the title, as you see there, the book of Judges, uh, the Hebrew word shafatim means judges, rulers, deliverers, or saviors. Um, And so it's not just in the sense of judge that we would think of, but a ruler, a deliverer, or a savior. And the fascinating thing about the book of Judges is though God's people often do not deserve, seek, or even appreciate it, God keeps giving his grace over and over and over again. You ever had someone wrong you or disappoint you and you say, you burn me once, it's one thing, but you do it twice or three times, we're done. And God repeatedly and tenaciously gives to his people in every generation Um, His grace. And may I say this by way of kind of just emphasis today, while we should never intentionally abuse God's grace, it is time for us today as God's people to believe anew and afresh in the grace of God that relentlessly is available in every generation. And here we are, brethren, I just say it to you, I'll just put it out there as we begin today, this series. We talk so much about the deficiencies of our generation or the generation to come, or the generation that preceded us. And we do not talk enough about the God of all grace. Grace that really we only can avail ourselves of when we are in perpetual failure, and acutely aware of it, and desperate for God to do something uh, in our day. And so this series, I hope, will encourage you, as you see the contrast between these judges and those that are under them and those that need them, and then God who just keeps giving and giving and giving Um, His grace. Now, as it relates to our study today, uh, we want to look at specifically this chapter, chapter number one, and a few verses in chapter two, as it relates to the half-hearted generation that is referenced in chapter one. Uh, If you ladies notice that we guys, and guys, you may want to write this down, Valentine's Day is a couple weeks away, so you may, most of us need some runway on this, so I'd encourage you to remember that date, prepare for that date, but us guys are not always the most um, we try, okay? Let's just put it that way. The other day I read of a lady, uh, she submitted this to the Reader's Digest. She said this, um, as the music swelled during a recent wedding reception, my hopelessly romantic husband squeezed my hand, leaned in, and said the following words, you are better looking than half the women here. I uh, should have probably just said nothing, okay? Leaned in and just held, okay? Uh, sometimes as it relates to half-hearted relationship with God, we focus on the good half. We focus on, well, at least God, I'm giving you something. And as we know in our own human relationships, half-hearted love, I would submit to you, often is worse than direct hate. Um, apathy and lethargy and kind of half in, half out Uh, is often detrimental to that relationship. And so here in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you basically have two introductions to the book. Um, Chapter 3 goes into the first cycle of the fall and then the judge and the revival and all that God does through Othniel specifically. But in chapter 1, or I'm sorry, in chapter 2, you have kind of the theological aspects of what sets up this book and the struggles of God's people. In chapter 1, that we'll spend most of our time in today, we see uh, more of the political and military struggles and how they wrestled with the enemies and challenges of their day. So the question today is this, in a day of riding the fence with God, even amongst God's people, how do we still practically believe that God will bless those and only those who go all in 
uh, with Kim. Let's talk about today two areas of half-heartedness that we have to we have to loose ourselves from or detach ourselves from to receive and experience all that God offers to us. Number one, let's talk about, first of all, um, incomplete. Here's the first consequence of half-heartedness that God can deliver us from, incomplete victory. Um, I don't know if you've seen an Ohio State t-shirt now and then or a sweatshirt that says the following words, because I couldn't go for three. I don't know if you're familiar with the backstory of this. Woody Hayes, I think the year was 1968, Ohio State was up against Michigan 50 to 14, and we had just scored a touchdown, just a couple minutes left, and he went for two. He didn't kick the, the extra point, he went for two. And he was asked in the interview at the end of the game, I wish I had video of this, this was pre, probably some of the video interviews, they said, why did you, up by that kind of a margin, why did you go for two? And he said this, you've probably heard this, many of you, because I couldn't go for three. Can I tell you today, much of our half-heartedness is exposed when we get our enemy on the run. We don't close the deal. We get them back on their heels. And unlike David, we don't lean in. We, we kind of back off. Half-heartedness leads to, unfortunately, in our lives regularly, incomplete victories. And we see this referenced, and we don't have time to unpack this chapter at length, but i just give you a few things as it relates to this incomplete victory. First of all, here's how we push back against that tendency. Believe, here it is in your outline there, believe that God can win even in imperfect success. Believe that God can win. He can win for his people even in that which is imperfect success. And in verses 1 to 8, you could jot down, first of all, I'm just kind of giving you a summary of this chapter. We see imperfect faith that is evidence, imperfect faith. Um, and so in chapter 1, the Israelites ask who's going to lead the way, and God responds in verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And it would be really neat if verse 3 said, and Judah did what God said. But notice what happens first. Verse 3, if we're not careful, we miss this. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me. So Judah is told he is to lead the way. And instead of right away responding with wholehearted obedience, it makes sense in one sense, doesn't it? To find someone else to help him. But God did not say Judah and Simeon. He said Judah. And so right away we see this kind of half-hearted, incomplete version of faith, imperfect faith, being expressed by Judah. In verses 4 to 7, God in his grace still gives them victory. They go up to summarize, and they, he, God delivers the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, uh, specifically Bezek, this city or this region, and Adonai, the lord of this region. Adonai, Bezek, they, they fight against him. They prevail against him. Verse 6, they pursue after him, caught him, cut off his thumbs and his great toes. It's going to be a lot worse violence we're going to read about in this book, okay? So if that makes you squeamish, brace yourself, okay, in the book of Judges here. And Adonai Bezek said, three score or 60 and 10 kings have their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table, as I have done, so God hath requited uh, to me. And so we see that even this pagan acknowledges God is just in giving to him this consequence uh, in his life. And so God works despite the incomplete faith of the tribe of Judah. Verse 8, 
Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem. Talks about they took it, they uh, uh, smote it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. It all sounds good. If you go down to verse 21, it says, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwelled with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. And so incomplete victory after incomplete victory. And so God still works despite um, this half-hearted approach of his people. It's interesting that the Jebusites were not defeated until whose reign? David's, right? 2 Kings chapter 5. May I say to you today, those of you who have yet to believe God fully and follow through on the battles he's given, when we have unfinished battles, we leave them to the next generation who already have their own set of battles to fight. Finish the job. Trust God completely uh, and free them to fight their own battles that God will put uh, in their path. And so often we burden down the next generation Uh, by having imperfect faith. And so we see God being gracious and merciful, even in the face of this limited faith. Number two, so imperfect faith. Number two, imperfect context. The word there is context. And one of the things I love about, (laughs) excuse me, about judges is their bright spots. So you have the dark and the defeat and the despair and different things that happen, but there are also these little glimpses of the ideal. And we see that in verse 9. Afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain and in the south and in the valley, and Judah went up against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was from Kerjath Arba, and they slew Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. Um, and it goes on to talk about um, others in this region and what God did through this defeat. Um, and so we see a reference to the family of Caleb. In fact, his name is mentioned beginning in verse number 12. What tribe was Caleb of? Tribe of Judah. Um, and we know based upon the accounts of Joshua that, that this is a recounting of a victory that God had already given to Caleb as he conquered, as he seized Hebron, this promised mountain and region that God had given to um, his family. Um, And so we see Caleb's family, despite what was going on in his generation, he stayed faithful to the Lord, he exerted himself, and God gave to him victory. Um, In fact, uh, verse 20, it says, And they gave Hebron unto Caleb as Moses said, and he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. Who were those guys? Little midgets? No, those were sons and relatives of Goliath. This was a, 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 a stronghold. And Caleb, this old guy that still believed in God and led his family as he should, God gave to him great victory. Now, here's what I want you to see about how it impacts the next generation. Go back to verse 12. I love this part of chapter 1. As you kind of try to jump on, if you will, the, the, the speeding bus of the study and the prep that, that's gone into this already. And uh, man, there's so much in this book. Look at verse 12. And Caleb said... He that smiteth Kerjath Safer and taketh it, to him will I give Achsah, my daughter, to wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it and, gave, and he gave him Achsah, his daughter, to wife. And if you were to look at the genealogies and stack them up, it's very likely that Othniel was actually the nephew of Caleb. Brother is, is a, would be a familial term, but it's likely that Othniel was actually the nephew, one generation younger um, than Caleb. 
And so he offers to any man willing to capture this region um, his daughter uh, to be wife. And notice that Caleb wants for his daughter to experience the, the promises of God and to live in those promises, to experience all that God uh, offers to his people. And so Othniel, his nephew, takes him up on um, this challenge. I just love to see in the midst of the timidity of other tribes, that here's a family, a part of a tribe that's willing to be the exception, willing to be assertive, willing to possess courage, and to lean into the promises of God. Question I have for you today as it relates to our kids and our teenagers and our families is why are we raising a generation that's playing it so safe? Um, We have children today, listen to me, who are afraid to get their driver's license. Uh, We have teenagers and young adults that are scared to death to go away to college. Instead, opt to live in our basement and live out life online, playing it safe. Caleb, as an old man, was raising a daughter and inspiring his family to do the courageous thing. May God help us to live that out as we see Caleb so resiliently uh, embodying uh, in his family. What are the odds that the give me this mountain kind of guy raised up a daughter and raised up others in his family who possessed that same courage? That was not by accident, was it? There's a direct correlation between the courage of your kids and your teenagers and your young adults and the the spirit in your own heart and your own life. And so may God help us to have this spirit. And notice Aixa, her spirit in verse 14. She wanted more. And it came to pass when she came to him that she moved him, this would be Othniel, now her husband, to ask of her father a field. And she lighted from off her ass, her donkey, and Caleb said unto her, what wilt thou And she said unto me, give me a blessing for thou hast given me the Southland. Give me also, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. So in the midst of all these tribes that are settling for less, you have a family in the tribe of Judah that wants more. And not in a selfish way, not in a materialistic way necessarily, but wanted to experience fully all that God had promised to take it, to settle it, to enjoy it, to steward it in a way that pleases the Lord. And what I love about this family is they stand as an open rebuke that nothing needs to be said. No matter what you guys do, it's possible to fully lean into and experience all that God expects and promises to his people. A friend of mine, a pastor I was with last year in our early travels with Inspire. Um, He said this just the other day. I saw it again. He said, let it be said, it ran in your family until it ran into Christ in you. Like maybe your family has not been the exception. Your family has not had that legacy, but can it stop with you? Can it stop with Christ in you? In fact, go back to 24 of Joshua, just back a page or two likely. And look at verse 15, Joshua, a peer of Caleb, said this just prior to Judges chapter 1 and verse 15. And man, may God help us to recapture this spirit. If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served, all right, there's the generational sin, that were on the other side of the flood of the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was determined and Caleb was determined to be the exception. 
with all the imperfect context and imperfect faith around them, they chose to trust the Lord. And so here's the application before we move on. Instead of looking to others for extra help or to set the tone in your life, will you choose to believe that God can still give success, can still deliver on his promises fully to you and to your family, to this church, to the areas of influence that we have? Where do you need to stop overanalyzing the threats and trends of your day and just fully commit to what God has commanded and will enable you to do? Even if it means you're the exception, you're the weirdo, you're the oddball. Are we willing to give God that room uh, in our lives? All right, go back to our text now to verse 19. And let's look at a second area of, of this grace that God offers to us despite the incomplete victories that go around. And I love that God can overcome this second struggle. Look at verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out. So this would be a kind of a description of the tribe as a whole. The inhabitants of the mountain, notice this next phrase, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Number two, jot this down. Believe that God can win despite imperfect success. Number two, despite coexisting selfishness. God can win, believe that he can, even in coexisting selfishness. Um, any of you notice that the price of eggs has gone up just a bit? Like, it's crazy, isn't it? Good thing they started so cheap to begin with, or we would, you know, all be, um, I don't know. It, to me, eggs were always like a cheap option growing up, you know? Oh no, dad must be laid off right now. We're eating eggs and pancakes, okay? That used to be what I associate with eggs. Now, it's like you're like a high roller, right, if you eat eggs on a regular basis. Um, in fact, Moses dropped off some eggs for us. We kind of deal in the black market now of eggs, so if you need help. <laughs> but he, he dropped them off, and I was supposed to unlock my car so he could put them in, and, and I, somehow I did it. And so he set them on my window, but it was like I'm like running out, like making sure nobody steals my dozen eggs, you know. Um, in fact, as I've been traveling, like I've eaten more eggs in the last couple weeks, because it's, you just feel like such, like I'm just like so all that, you know, if I eat eggs, you know, as I sit in the hotel lobby in the morning, um, I was telling Moses, you know how, this is, this is just a sidebar, there's no real spiritual application of this, but um, you know how rappers, any of you in the rap culture much, I know you're not probably, but they wear, if you raise your hand, I'm going to write down your name, okay? Uh, but you know how like, like they, or thugs or gang, they have like all the gold chains, they had a picture of this is how rappers flaunt their wealth now, and they had like a gold chain with a carton of eggs hanging from it, you know, just bam, look at it there, you know, all this wealth that I have. Um, can I say to you that a lot of our half-heartedness is because, to be totally frank with you, we have some benefits we get from coexisting with things that we actually should be defeating. Um, we get some creature comforts. We get some kickbacks that we don't want to own or fully identify with that, that, that we see also the people of God, the Israelites grappling with here uh, in the text. And I would give you two of them quickly. Number one, you see a calculating coexistence. They calculated that it was more beneficial for them in the immediate to live with instead of to defeat or to win over those that God had called them to defeat. And so a calculating coexistence. Um, and in verse 19, <laughs> verse 19 that we just read, 
it kind of now the whole thing shifts. If we ended in verse 18 and then just headed into, I don't know, maybe that's even the end of the book. It kind of, it sounds, man, yeah, the Israelites are, they're, they're headed toward victory and all the, here's all these breakthroughs they've experienced. But then in verse 19, it's almost like the wheels fall off and it jars us with things that they quote unquote could not do. And may I say to you today, it's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying fully God's blessings and God's victory. Uh, it is the fact that we do not truly trust in his strength. When we rely upon ourselves and base our walk and our decisions with God on our own calculations, instead of simply obeying his word, we will find ourselves making the same decisions that these Judites are making here. We can't because we're looking at only what we have and what we can calculate and bring into the equation. And this is what leads us to halfway, half-hearted kind of discipleship uh, with our God. All right, go down to verse 21. And I'm just going to give you now some examples of these calculations that were made that actually are miscalculations as we look back on them. Verse 21, the children of Benjamin, as we read a moment ago, did not drive out the Jebusites. Uh, go down, if you will, to verse 24. Now a reference to Joseph. Uh, verse 23, the house of Joseph sent to decry Bethel. Now the name of the city before was Luz. And the spies saw a man coming forth out of the city. They said unto him, show us, we pray thee, the entrance in the city, and we will show thee mercy. And when he showed them the entrance in the city, and he smote the city with the edge of the sword. Notice this exception, but they let go the man and all his family. And so Benjamin, not pushing out um, the Jebusites, the house of Joseph, making a covenant with a Canaanite instead of fulfilling their God-given covenant and command from God clearly uh, to do the exact opposite. And so this struggle with half-heartedness. Um, I was reading an article the other day. The author was talking about this concept of, of lukewarm. He said this, when given the choice, the vast majority of people will take lukewarm over hot or cold every time. Why do we do this? Because people don't like extremes, because it's comfortable. We would rather put our faith in neutral, give in to compromise, and settle for a lifeless, boring faith than to experience the kind of discomfort that creates growth. I don't like lukewarm liquids, but I do like, if I'm totally honest with you, a lukewarm existence because it doesn't make me uncomfortable. It allows me to, to feel good about what I'm doing that's right and to excuse away things I'm tolerating that are wrong, calculating coexistence. And may I say to you, the math that we use to calculate in this area is so short-sighted. There is a, listen to me, in investing this is true, this is true in any area, there's an exponential inertia that begins to build when we tolerate worldliness in our homes we allow it to be a part of our mindset, when we let it into our church, when we let it into our, uh, our very hearts, this calculation of coexisting does not age well. In fact, let's go on just to give you a few more examples. We see number two, you could jot this down, a profiting coexistence. So they made some calculations that caused them to coexist where they should conquer. Number two, they saw some profit. There was a profiting coexistence. Uh, verse 27 Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. Goes on to talk about the inhabitants of these other cities. But the Canaanites would dwell in that land. 
verse 28 that we just read, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to what? Tribute, profit, and did not utterly drive them out. And so Manasseh uh, makes an economic calculation. It, It gave them more economical funds, and it also took less effort. And so they chose to go with that which would bring them profit through compromise. Verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Uh, And it talks about, uh, the end of verse 29, the Canaanites dwelt among them. The end of verse 30, the Canaanites dwelt among them. And so we see Ephraim allowing the Canaanites to live among them. Zebulun opts for forced labor. We can get free labor. They can be our slaves. We can benefit from them. Uh, verse 31, neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko. goes on to talk about different reasons they did not deal with. But the Asherites, verse 32, dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Do you notice that little shift there? The previous tribe, the Canaanites are dwelling among them. What does it say of Asher? They're dwelling among the Canaanites. So now, not only is our culture still kind of in charge, and they're just kind of in the cracks and fissures, if you will, of our culture, we're now under them. We're dwelling among them. And this subtle shift that begins to take place, all out of seeking profit over the principle of trusting and obeying God. Uh, Let's go on. Verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, uh, the inhabitants of Beth Anath, and it goes on to talk about they, they, they became tributaries unto them. Uh, and so instead of allowing uh, the Canaanite, or instead of dealing with the Canaanites, they allow them just to be amongst them, tributaries, prophet, 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 prophet. And then sadly, notice the last description of the tribe of Dan, verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain for they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. But the Amorites would dwell in Mount Heres and Agilon in the Shalbim, uh, Shalbim, yet the hand of the house of Joseph prevailed so that they became tributaries. And so we see the tribe of Dan becoming confined to the hill country. You know what's interesting in verses 34 to 36? That instead of the borders of Dan being what God had given to them, the borders of Dan became the borders of this, their enemies. They didn't have, it wasn't their potential was living up to what God had promised. Their potential was living up to what their enemies would let them do. And we've settled for being on the defensive as God's people. We have the promises of God to step on, to lean on, to kneel on, and then go forward. And we're allowing ourselves to retreat where we should be claiming the promises of God. And so the tribe of Dan, because they sought profit, settled for what the enemy would allow them to do and not do. And I I just give you this question that convicts me as I even read it. Can we at least admit where we are not victorious in this present world because we honestly like the pleasurable perks that come from simply signing a truce with it? We're We're not experiencing victory in God's power. It has nothing to do with the victory and the power God could give. We just like what comes when we just have a truce. We just sign away uh, what God has promised to us as his people. Quick verse in the New Testament. Go to James, would you, for a moment? Chapter 4. Again, this is not to pick on you or 
guilt trip you into anything. It's just to inspire you that God can still work if you'll just trust him, if I'll just trust him. James chapter 4. And this rebuke confronts our tendency to compromise with the world. James chapter 4. And let's look, if you will, at verse number 4. James 4 and verse 4. For those in the room who are right now or are tempted to make this move of compromise that leads to incomplete victory, let this verse speak for itself. James chapter 4 and verse 4. James says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do, do I need to say anything after that? Speak for itself. Therefore, we will never experience victory completely if we have aligned with the world and therefore are actually fighting against God. Victory comes when we align with God when we submit to God, when we trust God, like we see the household of Caleb doing? Where do you need to stop settling for the neither existence, the neither this tribe and neither this tribe and neither this tribe? Instead of coexisting, would you be willing to let God use you to conquer um, some things in your life? I've loved this statement for years. G.K. Chesterton said this once. I don't know if you have a favorite fairy tale um, I grew up watching all the Disney uh, cartoons. My Aunt Dale always had those. She's now with the Lord, but I remember going to her house always watching those fairy tales. G.K. Chesterton said this, Fairy tales do not, tell the do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales ta uh, tell children that dragons can be killed. Does the next generation believe that we can still see victory? Listen to me, and are they seeing it in our life? Is there a win in the recent past in your life? Or is it all about, it's just all, it's all over, and we just got to kind of try to stay comfortable and ride this out. Where's the victory? And if it's not there, would you beg God to give it to you anew and afresh for the eyes of the young people? All right, chapter 2. Let's go back to our text now, Judges chapter 2. And let me give you a second area that, man, this is incredibly helpful and yet challenging as it relates to our truce with the world. So you see in chapter 1, these incomplete victories, um, and now God's going to give them a second challenge in chapter 2. And we'll go through most of chapter 2 next time, but let's look at the first couple of verses. Verse 1, And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Boshim, and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and have brought you in the land which I swear unto your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I would underline that statement. Because that undergirds much of what God is going to do. As we get further in the book, if you've never read Judges or it's been a while, you're going to think, why is God still giving them hope and, and an option back to him? It's because of what he says here in verse 1. All right, secondly, number two. So the first thing that happens when we have a half-hearted generation mindset, incomplete victories, God can help us with that. Number two, regrettable compromise. God can also help us when we see in our generation regrettable compromise. I can't remember what Heidi and I were watching, but something that was talking about, they were um, teaching you how to build puppets. I, trust me, we were not thinking of doing this, just somehow this came up. We're not secret closet puppeteers. Um, but uh, they were talking about building puppets and, and kind of the art, artistry behind it. And it just, I always love to hear of some new 
area and the, kind of the reasons or the thinking behind it. What was striking to me was this. They said, if you want to make a puppet look younger, like and convey that kind of subliminally to either children or even adults, listen, you make their eyes bigger. So the bigger the eyes, the younger the puppet looks. And here's one of the things I notice as we age. We start letting life and our own dysfunction and the circumstances around us to shrink what is possible. Not just in other people's lives, but in our life, in our day, in this moment. And the regrettable compromises that often we suffer from and we see in others around us, God can actually free us from that if we will simply trust him. And it's interesting because we're about to get to it in verses 2 and following, but if you were to end chapter 1, you might even say, okay, I get why the Israelites had limited success. And God calls them out on it, doesn't he? He's going to directly confront them about where they had settled or compromised from all that he intended. And so that's the spirit now of these first few verses of chapter 2. All right, so a couple of things about this as it relates to regrettable compromise. Number one, jot this down. Believe that God will confront weak excuses. Bank on it, count on it. God will confront weak excuses. And the first thing that he confronts is weakness of commitment. And we see that in verse 1 that we just read as well as now the beginning of verse 2. Look at it. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars but ye have not obeyed my voice. And so God here confronts their weakness of commitment. Now, when you see in verse 1, and the angel of the Lord came, we kind of just read over that. Do you know that's likely a Christophany would be the technical word? It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Um, this angel of the Lord also appears later in the book of Judges to Gideon in chapter 6, also appears later to the parents of Samson in chapter 13, this possibly, likely, was God the Son coming and dealing directly with his people and confronting their weakness of commitment. You know what that says to me? That even when our commitment has a low ebb, God is still committed to us. This confrontation, you can take it negative if you want, but I'm telling you, that's not the spirit of it. It's saying God still wants to be close to his people. He still wants to provide his power and his provision He's disappointed, not in them as much as the fact what could have been. Uh, the victory that could have been accomplished and the things that could have been insulated from their children if they had had strength instead of weakness of commitment. And so the angel of the Lord rehashes his redemptive mercies to, in Exodus, the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. He rehearses the divine prohibition to the Israelites regarding alliances with the Canaanites or worshiping their idols. And notice the question that he asked them at the end of verse 2. They have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Trying to bring conviction, trying to bring them back to, uh, to himself, this probing question that should be also echoing in our hearts and minds today. And may I say to you today, we all will make a covenant with something and someone. And if it's not with God, it will be with some other being or some other thinking or some other feeling. There is not, despite the half-hearted tendencies in all of us this morning, there's no third option. We're either in covenant with God or we're in covenant with something or someone else. It's not that we don't have passion 
And we don't have commitment. It's misplaced from where it should be in the Lord. And so God confronts these weak excuses. Uh, And then you notice in verse 2, as we read already, but the end of the verse, he says, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Back in chapter 1 and verse 19, do you notice the little word that's used? But could not. You know what God's saying in verse 2? It wasn't about what you could not do. It's what you would not do. It didn't have anything to do with what could or could not be done. It had everything to do with what they would be willing to submit to. And so God answers with, it's not about we could not, it's about you, you would not. Can I ask you a question today? I'd like you to think about this for a moment. Where am I saying, where are you saying, we can't? And God would say to us directly today, you won't. You know how convicting that is to me today? How many artificial barriers and ceilings and limits and restrictions I allow to be placed upon myself that God would say to me, it has nothing to do with what you can't do. It's what you're unwilling to do. It's not you can't, you won't. One of the toughest parts of pastoring, I'll just be honest with you, this is not true of our church. Our church, I would say, is the exception. I'm sure I'm a bit biased. But as I travel and talk to pastors, one of the hardest things about pastoring is hearing excuse after excuse after excuse. And to be blunt, they're pretty weak many times. And I'm so grateful that God loves me enough to listen to my excuses and then say to me anew and afresh, why are we still here? Why are you settling for this? But why not, why not move forward? Why not step into things you've opted out of that God could do? I love the question or the probing kind of just as Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he says this to them, how oft would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. I would, but you won't. What in your family, what in my life and your life, what in our church could God do if we'd stop limiting him by saying we can't when in reality it is just a willful decision? God sees through the excuses of your half-heartedness. He sees through them. What excuses do you need to swap out for responsibility in a covenant relationship with God that he continues to freely and consistently offer to you? All right, let's end today in verse 3 through 5. And I love these verses. They're, they're tough, but they give to us hope because God's willing to deal with the things in our lives. Look, if you will, verse 3. Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides. And their notice this, their gods shall be a snare unto you. Number two, capital B there, believe that God will confront worship issues. So he will confront weak excuses. Number two, he will confront worship issues. Um, A week ago, Sunday night, I was flying out of Charlotte. If you remember, we got snow, right? It was kind of a sketchy day that day. Um, We had just rain where I was leaving, but some of the affected the flights leaving. So it was late by the time I got back to Cleveland was after midnight. And the last flight that I had was from Baltimore uh, to Cleveland. And so we're taxiing on the runway. We had to wait a while and finally get there. And the neat thing was the crew had a good sense of humor. I don't know if you've been on a flight where it's like, these people ought to run every flight I'm ever on. If you've flown much, they weren't grumpy. They weren't micromanaging us. You know, typically, you know, airline stewards always checking your tray table and your armrest. And you're like, I think I got everything up and off. And then still something you forgot. Hey, would you, sir, would you, you know, like I'm a threat to, to the, 
the prosperity of this flight. But anyway, so we were getting ready to take off. It was late at night, and uh, the flight attendant, and I thought she was serious, just her voice had this feel. She said, if you would, uh, gentlemen and ladies, if you would check your, uh, your seatbelt one more time as we take off. And then she said this, and I, I wish I could see my own face ex- facial expression. She said, check your seatbelts. The captain wants to try something new. And, it, and we all kind of, and then, yeah, we knew she was joking, you know, like, what is he going to do? You know, take off upside down or we didn't know what, you know, seatbelt and try new that just, that kind of jarred me. I was awake for that flight. Okay. Um, do you know, as it relates to worship, God, God wants things to be fresh between us and him. He wants to elevate us in our relationship and our worship of him. But listen to me, he does not tolerate new things. He's been very careful to define and to qualify what is faithful worship and what is not faithful worship. And the temptation when we are half-hearted is to begin to consider kind of half measures in this area or to begin to integrate in to our not just worship as in singing, but our lifestyle and our relationship with God, things that are not pleasing to him. And so God here confronts these tendencies they've allowed in through compromise. And I would give you two of them as we finish. Number one, notice this worship is a thorny worship. He uses the word thorn. Did you see that there? They shall be as thorns in your sides. They shall be as thorns in your side. And so because they failed to drive out the Canaanites and to destroy their idolatrous altars, now God will refuse to drive out the inhabitants. And instead allow these that they've allowed to continue to live with them, to harass them. In fact, I think in verses 1 to 5, we have an explanation of why Israel continues this dance with all of these nations for the rest of the book. It, it was, listen to me, the story of Judges is not arbitrarily happening because the Israelites messed up and then God's surprised by what happens. Every one of these stories, not just when God revives them, but when he sends the, the nation to be a thorn in their side, it's God that's doing it. Everything going on in our world today is still issuing forth from the throne of God. He's trying to use these things, and he, it's often the consequences of decisions that we have made. And so this thorny worship that now is their lot because of the half-heartedness that they uh, have experienced. I don't know if this strikes you as convicting, but it does me. How much of the friction and pain in our lives is unnecessary and optional? How much of it is unnecessary and optional, but we have chosen it in the sight of God that we still pretend we worship. How much of it, how much of the, I'm not saying all of it, but how much of it is, and we're trying to blame others and blame shift away and, and kind of distance ourselves from the effects and the consequences of half-hearted worship. Man, I was listening to this last week in a podcast. He was talking about how Satan tries to tempt us, the messaging that he tries to direct our way counselor. And he said this, Satan will attempt to lure us away with lies that are too good to be true and intimidate us with lies too bad to be true. I thought that part was interesting. If, if I give all out to God, then man, it's going to get really bad. And often that half-heartedness, that fearfulness, we buy the lie that things are too bad, uh, much worse than they ever could be. And so free yourself of that. Let God help you through Uh, this area of worship. All right, and then lastly, verse three, he goes on to say, and their God shall be a snare unto you. Number two, ensnaring worship. Verse three, the intermarriage with the Canaanites led to tolerance. 
participation in their idolatry. And this snare of idolatry is the cycle. It's a part of the cycle in the book of Judges over and over and over again. Now, if you were to talk to the Israelites at the end of chapter one, I think they would say this. Just listen to this for a second. They would say, man, look how much better off we are. Two generations ago, we were slaves in Egypt. And now here, look at the prosperity. Look at Look at us. Look at what we have. Look at what we live in. Look at the control and the domineerance that we have in different areas of this culture and this part of the world. The problem was that they were living alongside idol-worshiping Canaanites. And like buried minds, one commentator said, like buried minds, these idols lie dormant in Judges 1, ready to explode in the spiritual lives of God's people. They're just under the surface. And what concerns me is this, as your pastor, is how we're not as good off as we think we are. There are things just under the surface that we think I can continue to kind of be a moderate believer. And yet these things will rear their ugly heads in the years to come. And so we need to deal with it. God gives us the confrontation to own it, to identify it, and to repent of it. Who you worship will largely shape what compromises you make. If it's self that you worship, you'll never get beyond a half-hearted pursuit of God. May God help us to grow beyond that. All right, let's end today in Joshua 14. Would you go back just a couple of chapters? Since we talked about Caleb, wanted to land in a positive way. Some of what we've talked about today could be interpreted as negative or confrontational. Sometimes we need that from the Lord. But look here in Joshua 14. And specifically, verse 8, 9, and 14, as we finish. Before we get to that, um, yes, uh, Friday was my wife's birthday. And uh, so one of the things I did, sacrificial that I am, is I watched a romance movie with her, okay? Yeah, I know. You're impressed. I know. I know. I am too. And, uh, and we, it wasn't a Hallmark movie, but it should have been, okay? It was just one of those. And... Um, same actors, same script, the whole thing. But anyway, um, her and I, in all seriousness, we were watching a, a clip of a movie a few months ago um, just to illustrate how God feels about our half-heartedness. And the wife had secretly observed her husband buying a piece of jewelry. And uh, she didn't say anything to the husband. This was built up, I think, to Christmas sitting around the tree and she sees the box and she knows what it is but when she opens it it's not that piece of jewelry and she quickly grapples from that that he had bought that for someone else and it was just and just this the if you've seen this clip or not if you're tracking with me or not she just sobs she's wiping tears she's alone she realizes her husband is not exclusively focused on her do you know what it must feel like to god to have half-hearted, we actually think we and God are good and who we are and what we do. And, and we are fooling ourselves if we think that God is content with that and if God actually buys that um, in our generation. And I love Caleb, the man we read about earlier. And I just want you to notice one little word that keeps coming up in verse 8. Nevertheless, this is Caleb speaking, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Go down, if you will, to verse 9. Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereupon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance. Notice, and thy children forever, because thou hast what? 
wholly followed the Lord my God. Then if you would, lastly, verse 14. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenzanite, unto this day because that he wholly followed the Lord his God. Doesn't that resonate a bit more against the backdrop of all the half-heartedness of Judges 1? Caleb did it in one generation. In fact, he and Joshua were the only guys north of 20 who survived their, their generation, all the wandering. And again, in Judges chapter 1, it's still Caleb who's the exception. Why? Because he wholly followed the Lord his God. And may I say to you today, what we need today is not a change in a generational sense. We just need a few more Caleb's. We just need a few more in Othniel's. We just need a few more of Caleb's daughter kind of mindset, willing to be the exception and wholly follow the Lord. I end with this thought today. This is a great statement, not original in a sacred sense. Never touch anything or anyone with half of your heart. And may I say to you bluntly and directly, don't at least do it with God. Don't touch him. Don't reach out to him. Don't cry out to him. Don't claim him and identify him with just half your heart. I don't know if we ever can give him all of our heart, but we should at least not pretend we are when we know we're not. That will start a revival in our ranks. That will move the next generation to lean in instead of lean out because they sense we actually wholeheartedly believe and love and trust the God that we associate with. Here's the question we'll pray. We allow God to free you from the, uh, from the consequences of half-heartedness that include incomplete victory and regrettable compromises. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today.